the hell is going on? What's really going on? We said, what the hell happened? You don't have to know what the hell is on it. They, they see what's going on. I don't know what's going on. What is going on? We must find out what is going on. Hi, I'm Mark Thiessen. And I'm Danielle Pletka. And welcome to our podcast, What the Hell is Going On? So, Danny, where the hell are you? Uh, I'm in Australia, as, as everybody will be able to tell, because it sounds like we're talking on a connection that's being gnawed at by rats undersea. By so, wallabies. To everyone. <laughs> well, what are we talking about today, Danny? So we are talking about this nominal blockbuster report from the Washington Post, probably one of the most hyped presentations I've seen the Washington Post do in a long time, the so-called Afghanistan papers, the 21st century's version of the Vietnam Pentagon papers. And uh, yeah, what do you think about it? Well, they basically made the case that Afghanistan has been, uh, as Ryan Crocker put it, a wall-to-wall disaster for the United States, another Vietnam that we have to admit defeat and get out. And two, that the American people have been lied to, not just by the Bush administration, but by the Obama administration and, quite frankly, the Trump administration, that every president, every presidential administration has been lying to the American people, telling them that we're doing making progress, telling them that the mission is essential, when internally they knew that wasn't the case. You know, you, you mentioned the Pentagon Papers, which were a set of secret documents that were published about the Vietnam War. And those were classified documents that were showing internal discussions within the government at the time of the Vietnam War, which showed that they did, in fact, lie to the American people and tell them we're winning, everything is great, uh, when they were talking amongst themselves about how the effort was failing. The large part of these memos is from a lessons learned process that was being done by the uh, something called SIGAR, which is the uh, Special Inspector General for Afghanistan Reconstruction. And what they did was they brought in lots of people who had previously and were currently involved in Afghanistan policy in the military and in the civilian side, and they conducted off-the-record interviews with them, asking them essentially to do a self-critique, to do a lessons learned process. The military does this all the time. And figure out, you know, be brutal with yourself. What did you do wrong? What could you have done better? What failed? What succeeded so that we can learn for the next time how to do that? And what the Post did with this was they took that and turned it into a, see, our government knew that it was all a failure and all these terrible things they said. And it's not true. It was an after-action report about the mistakes that were made, which we would hope the government would be doing because we make mistakes and we got to learn from them. I mean, I have to confess, we have a lot of friends at the Washington Post, both among reporters and on the editorial Absolutely. page. I feel almost sort of Donald Trump-like in my reaction to this. This is really fake news because, and it's, it's not just fake news in the sense that blank, insert your most hated president here, lied, people died. It is much more, to my mind, an effort, first of all, to boost something that they and they didn't get by great reporting. They did a freaking FOIA request. That's number one. Number two, people weren't lying to the American people. The America's leaders, neither Bush nor Obama nor the Trump people were lying to the American people about this. I couldn't find you an American who would say, yeah, wow. I can't believe Afghanistan is a, you know, is a disaster. You know, I was told so long. It was just like, you know, Hollywood or L.A. It's wonderful there. That's number two. Number three, 
what implication does this have for the future? Would you sit down with an after-action report investigator, whether Bingo. it was a DOD or it was an inspector general, and have a frank and open discussion if you knew that some sleazy journalist was going to then mischaracterize everything you ever said and accuse you and your colleagues of having lied on the strength of it? No, absolutely not. And that's actually the biggest danger of this. We'll get into the policy and, and what they reported in, in a moment. But I think you're absolutely right. I mean, what I worked for, you know, for three years in the Pentagon. I sat with Secretary Rumsfeld and our commanders in on what are called lessons learned exercises. And I know in Rumsfeld's case, and I'm sure Gates and others who've succeeded him and Panetta have done the same thing. He really pressed our commanders to go back and look and say, what did you do wrong? Be self-critical. Criticize others, right? You're a three-star general. Criticize that other three-star general who had another sector and tell us what he did wrong. It's all off the record. Don't worry. You know, it's not going to be in the Washington Post. And they did it. And they would do it because it was really important to us to learn from our mistakes because Look, there's never been a war in human history where everything went according to the war plan. So the famous phrase that, you know, the war plan uh, disappears in the second the boots hit the ground, right? And so things happen and the enemy has a vote in how the battle goes and you make strategic decisions and sometimes they don't work out. And so if we don't have the freedom in the government, our military and our civilian leaders of the military don't have the freedom to have that kind of a frank discussion then we're going to keep making the same mistakes over and over again. So I think this report, quite frankly, uh, you know, is really damaging to our national security. Yeah, you and I agree completely. And you know, we're we're going to have a conversation about this. But the the other really really big axe I have to grind here is this office of the inspector general. You know, I have we actually you and I have former colleagues who work in both the OIG for Iraq and the CIGAR, the Special Inspector General for Afghanistan. And again, these have become, to use an expression that I absolutely can't stand, self-licking ice cream cones. These are school marmish inspectors who exist for the virtue of catching out our officials on the ground, be they military, be they development, be they State Department, drives me absolutely nuts. Because, you know, I'm all for inspector generals. You absolutely want to make sure that people are careful. But that's not what these guys are. These guys are out there looking for things to criticize. I will not question your uh, views on Cigar. I'm, I'm a huge fan of lessons learned generally, though it can probably get too d- down in the woods where there's, a, there's an incentive to just criticize everything in order to justify your existence. But lessons learned are a very important thing to have that process and to have some sort of a mechanism for it. I don't know if Cigar is the right mechanism or not, but certainly we have to have something like that. And I think this reporting puts a chill on our ability to, to do that. Yeah, no, I couldn't agree more. I really am looking forward to the conversation that you and I are going to have with Michael O'Hanlon from Brookings about this. He has written about our operations in Afghanistan. He's written about our operations in Iraq. He has been in both places. He's worked very closely with generals who have been on the ground, with ambassadors who've been on the ground, regardless of administration, regardless of political party or persuasion. He is just a really honest and deep and serious analyst. And so a Democrat, by the way, this is not like a Bush, not a Bush apologist. He was actually much more involved in the policy in the Obama years than he was in the Bush time. 
He's a senior fellow at the Brookings Institution. His specialty is defense and foreign policy. He's the author of numerous works. He wrote a book called Toughing It Out in Afghanistan, which is outstanding. He's written a book called The Science of War. There's no one better to have on. So we count ourselves really lucky to have a great conversation. All right, Michael, welcome to the podcast. Mark and Danny, thanks for having me. It's great to have you here. So, look, there is this Washington Post series that's come out, the Afghanistan Papers, which is supposed to be an allusion to the Pentagon Papers, and you've written a very uh, persuasive argument that the Post got it wrong. So, to, first of all, tell us what the Afghanistan Papers allege and uh, what's wrong with the approach that they've taken. Thanks. Well, I thought the first day of roughly a six-part series was wrong. The other days were largely, and the whole thing was based largely on accessing documents that had been done by the Special Inspector General for Afghan Reconstruction over the years. And a lot of it is familiar terrain as we talk about Afghanistan, a mission that's been frustrating by any measure to any, even those of us who have been pretty consistent supporters, you know, difficulty building the Afghan army, difficulty fighting corruption, difficulty shutting down opium production, all these extensive documents that reaffirmed things we frankly already knew, but, you know, there's no harm in assembling them in one place. But the harm was the opening day when the Post said there's been a pattern of deception and duplicity by American officials throughout this war, officials who always knew we were falling short but didn't want the public to know, didn't have the courage to tell them the truth, wanted to keep this thing going for whatever reason. They just didn't want to fail or they thought it would be damaging to their own personal reputations. And so consistently, according to the Post, these American officials uh, at various levels, but presumably including our key ambassadors and military commanders in the field, as well as presidents and their officials back in the cabinet in Washington. And not just George were, W. Bush, but Barack Obama also right. was, was criticized. Exactly. So this was, you know, almost 20 years. It was a very bipartisan broadside. Uh, and I thought that part was wrong. I thought that was fundamentally wrong because I've tracked this war, as I'm sure you and Danny have, and we know that, uh, in my judgment, people have never played up this great stellar success for public consumption, and while at the same time they were admitting to each other privately that it was failing. That was not the narrative. The narrative for all of us was, this is hard. Maybe we don't want to do too much nation building there. Let's try to get out if we can. George Bush wanted to minimize the presence for most of the time he was there. Barack Obama surged up, but then he wanted to get out. Donald Trump never wanted to be there in the first place. Presidents have been extremely lukewarm at best about this. Their officials, to my mind, have typically acknowledged the failings and frustrations. So to call this a deception on the part of Washington, you know, at the expense of Congress and the American people, I just thought reinforced the cynicism and, you know, disparaging of key officials that we arguably have too much of already in this poisonous political atmosphere. So I was pretty adamantly opposed to that approach. So let's walk through the difference between this and the Pentagon Papers. So the Pentagon Papers were documents that were released during the Vietnam War that showed that the government had been lying to the American people about the success of our effort in Vietnam. And they're trying to draw an illusion between Afghanistan and Vietnam. And in the case of the Pentagon Papers, these were highly classified documents. They were contemporaneous. So they were showing that at the very same time that the government was saying we were succeeding internally, they knew we were failing. What's the difference between that and these documents. So in Afghanistan and the documents that are now available on the Post site, but the documents that really were available publicly in many cases throughout this whole last uh, 20 years, I believe officials have consistently said, we know it's hard in Afghanistan. We're not going to be able to attain 
major high objectives. This is a very weak state. This is not a place where you can expect to create Valhalla, as Secretary Gates liked to say, referring back to antiquity. You know, this was a place where we had to be modest and minimalist in our goals. That was the public message. These documents that were created were largely interviews done after the fact with officials looking back on policy of two, three, four, five, eight years ago in regard to Afghanistan. And they were personal reflections about how people themselves thought about it at that later date. So they were not contemporaneous. And they were from uh, a lessons learned project, right? Exactly. So the idea of the military does what people I don't think are, all of our listeners know. The military regularly does what's called lessons learned, where they go back after something has happened and ask people to critique themselves, right? So they're being asked to, to criticize themselves and their performance. Where did they go wrong? What worked well? What didn't work well? And they're now using that to say that we were li- that they were American people were lied to. Is that right? Yes. And I think about the worst thing you can accuse officials of is believing in a strategy that wasn't very promising, and also sometimes giving the more positive interpretation when you were hoping to see success of whatever recent strategic modification you had made to policy. So if all of a sudden we start incentivizing Afghan soldiers to stay in the Afghan army in a different way, and then for the first couple of months we see a little higher retention. It's not surprising or unreasonable for an American commander to say, I think we now have a policy that might be working. And lo and behold, six months later, the whole thing has plateaued or even fallen back. Turns out their hopes were not justified, but they might have been very reasonable. Mm -hmm. And they were not duplicitous. They were, you could say, in a worst case, sort of cheerleading. But more often than not, they were adopting and adapting and trying a new approach and then looking for evidence as to whether it was working, sometimes hoping they saw that evidence before it was conclusive. That's about the worst, I believe, that people consistently did. Now, there were individual commanders at certain sites, certain people who maybe went too far drinking the Kool-Aid or making the Kool-Aid, frankly. But I don't think that General Petraeus or General Allen or General Dunford or General McChrystal, or Ambassador uh, Crocker, or those sort of people were trying to lay out a deliberate strategy of deception, nor do I believe the presidents they worked for were doing so. And in fact, I know pretty much factually the opposite, because I remember very well, and can prove from documents that were released throughout this period, that the public debate was well aware of the doubts of almost everyone about being too ambitious in Afghanistan and attaining major accomplishments quickly. Almost everybody was cautioning against that all the time. We can go back and talk about specifics, if you like, on that front. But one example that sticks out just very briefly is the 2009 Obama debate about if and when to increase. And of course, President Obama has been criticized, uh, including um, perhaps maybe even by you, I can't remember for sure, about how long he took to make that set of decisions. The whole reason why he took that long and was sort of pondering in public for all of us to see is he couldn't persuade himself that even this increase in forces would achieve the objectives that he thought important. So he sort of pondered and equivocated and tried to split the difference or split the baby, call it what you will. And there were all these discussions of how he was potentially being, you know, pressured by these great generals, Petraeus and McChrystal and Admiral Mullen, who had so much more Washington experience. All that was the way it was being discussed at the time. There was no cover up. There was no duplicity. There was an honest policy disagreement and a fair amount of debate over a difficult path ahead. And we all knew it then and we know it now. So, Michael, not to be sort of hyper-Washington and hyper-political about this, but you wrote an excellent piece saying, you know, denying the premise of the Washington Post story. Ambassador Ryan Crocker did the same thing. Jim Dobbins, who was our special envoy for Afghanistan, had a 
a piece in the Hill in which he said the same thing. I mean, basically, everybody who has followed this issue in a serious and close way disagrees with the post premise. What's the post up to here? What's this game? Well, it's a good question, and I'm going to be careful because I don't want to guess too much, and people can draw their own conclusions. But I do think, you know, journalists work their tails off to get these kinds of documents, and when they get them, they want to make it into the biggest possible story. That's what sells. And there are many times where that's reasonable as an approach. And like I say, just to prove I'm, or I hope prove that I'm not on a vendetta against the Post, I thought five of the six days of this series were fine. And uh, the headlines were somewhat dramatic in those uh, days as well, but they weren't uh, trying to allege misbehavior or duplicity on the part of officials. As Mark said earlier, they are the ones who called this the Afghanistan Papers. The reference and the echo to the Pentagon Papers was just too obvious to miss. And so I think, you know, it's well known that the Washington Post did very well uh, in terms of its Vietnam and Watergate coverage and elevated its stature and frankly did a great public service in my mind looking back historically. But there's got to be a temptation to want to see if you can do the same thing now. So maybe there was a little bit of, uh, you know, frankly, naivete on the part of the Post to have uh, forgotten sort of how these debates felt when they were occurring back in the moments uh, that I just referred to. Because I think if you had a clear memory of those times, you would know you could accuse people of a lot of things. Uh, not a very good strategy, not a very quick uh, adaptation when strategy failed, but you would not accuse them of duplicity because the entire public tenor of the Afghanistan mission for many years has been very sober. Uh, I'll give one more example. I know that, again, President Obama, of course, pres criticized President Bush for fighting the wrong war, and he used that argument against John McCain in 2008. And then he came into office enthusiastic about Afghanistan, saying that was the right war, that was the place from which the 9-11 attacks had been hatched. But then Obama's own enthusiasm for the Afghanistan mission only lasted maybe a year. And his famous West Point speech of December 1st, 2009, uh, which announced the surge, also announced the end of the surge at the same time in the same speech. Which is insane. Which is, well, y you can criticize it, and I probably would too, but the point is that it's pretty hard to accuse Obama of overselling the mission because at that point he acknowledged the whole reason for surging up quickly and then coming back down is he wanted to keep pressure on an Afghan government that he thought would otherwise, because of corruption and weakness, just depend on us too much. This was all transparent in his motivation at the time. So he was not overselling the mission. He was not telling us, we're doing so darn well, American people, that I can surge up and then surge down, and it's going to be fantastic. That's not what he said. He said, we need to surge up to avoid losing the war, but we also need to make the Afghans know that it's their mission and they've got to own it or we'll lose in a different way. So we're going to do this whole quick build up, quick build down in an effort to find a way to split the difference. Just to follow up on that, it escaped me in reading the Post's coverage what exactly the lies were that were being told. You know, we certainly we did make progress. You know, it wasn't just that we captured bin Laden in Pakistan. It was that we got rid of the Taliban government. It was that we diminished the, the territory from which Al-Qaeda was able to operate. So there were certainly successes on the ground. But as you say, our leaders from Bush to Obama to even Trump have been very somber about the limitations and especially very somber about our partners. Where's the lie here? Yeah, I have a hard time with that, too. You know, I think that there may have been periods that were pretty short when officials 
who are getting classified intelligence, as you would hope our public officials would do, um, may have talked with each other for a few months as they started to see a trend line they didn't like before they talked to the public about it or before a new policy had been built. For example, when President Bush realized by about 2007, which is the same year as the Iraq surge, of course, that the Afghanistan mission was starting to slip away and the Taliban were coming back, you know, I think initially in that year, he was just trying to make Iraq succeed. He only sort of do one big thing at a time. But as the year progressed, I think he, he and his officials were starting to realize the Afghanistan mission needed new energy. And Bob Gates started to say so. And then Barack Obama on the cam- campaign trail was saying so. And so there was maybe, a, I don't know, I'm guessing a six to 12 month lag between when President Bush first started to see pretty compelling evidence that this mission was slipping away and when he began to publicly articulate a new strategy in recognition of that slippage. But you would expect that kind of a time lag because, A, you don't really want presidents divulging classified information to the public. And if they're using classified information to rethink their own assumptions, some of that has to be done privately. Secondly, they're not going to start saying the mission's going badly before they have either a willingness to square up with a reality that's so overwhelming they can't do anything about it, or they've thought through a little bit of their alternative. Maybe President Bush waited a month or two too long, but I don't think so. I mean, when I look back on that period, I believe that uh, we probably didn't have a great strategy in Afghanistan in 03, 04, 05, 06, but when it became clear that we were failing, President Bush was fairly quick to respond once the surge in Iraq allowed him enough forces to do so. So again, I think that the, the concept of deceit is fundamentally the incorrect way to describe these difficulties in strategy. So, Michael, I mean, a lot of our listeners are looking at this and saying, 18 years and plus that we've been in Afghanistan, why the hell are we still there? You know, and what does victory look like? What does success look like? It seems like we had two goals in Afghanistan. One was... Uh, to drive al-Qaeda out of the country that they had, and the Taliban out of power in the country where they planned the 9-11 attacks and prevent it from becoming a terrorist safe haven. And I think we've done a pretty good job of that. It is not a terrorist safe haven that threatens America today. So success. But strategy two was to help the Afghans become self-sufficient both in security and governance. And that's the part that hasn't gone so well. Is that you agree with that assessment? And, uh, And why do we need to stay? Yeah, thank you. I think that's a pretty good way to frame it. Uh, I also would note that some people will hope now in these on-again, off-again peace talks with the Taliban that we could even tolerate them having a share of power as long as they've definitively broken with al-Qaeda. Well, I've got a bridge to sell you if you think well, they're going to do that. It's a very good point, which makes you wonder, have they really changed? What you know, 18 years later, some of them have changed. A lot of the earlier leaders are dead, but a lot of the younger ones are more hard- hardline even than their predecessors. So I think it's going to be hard, yes, to... Um, envision seeing the Taliban be back in Afghanistan and really in power and really believe they're going to keep al-Qaeda and ISIS, especially al-Qaeda, at, at arm's length. So I have two questions. One is a, a sort of, a, is again, a political one, and one is a structural one. You, know, you, you, like our colleague Fred Kagan, like a lot of others who are viewing Afghanistan through the prism of geostrategic imperative, think we need to maintain a modest, but still, you know, not huge, you know, not tiny footprint in Afghanistan. 5,000 troops, long-term, long-term commitment. How is this, dare I call it, fake news 
going to affect that. The president uh, has adopted the language of Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren. He likes to refer to endless wars. The others call it them forever wars. Do you see any constituency here among the people who will have the possibility of being president in 2020 and after the 2020 elections? Do you see any possibility of them actually supporting even that modest commitment, particularly given this Washington Post story? Well, maybe not on the campaign trail, and I certainly don't think too many will bring it up on the campaign trail on purpose. But I think once you're in the Oval Office and you're responsible for protecting the country and making sure al-Qaeda and ISIS don't return to the kind of influence and opportunity they had before, and also you realize that the Afghanistan mission costs maybe 1% to 2% of the defense budget at the levels I'm proposing, I think that you, you might very well elect to keep it because even though it polls badly. It's not as if you see million-person marches on the mall against the Afghanistan mission. There's no, <laughs> there's no intensity in the feeling on the part of most Americans. Now, No one but, asked Mark Esper during his confirmation hearings about this. That's fascinating, yeah. Nobody did. Right. And we all know, and all three of us certainly, and I think most, uh, you know, most thoughtful Americans are, feel very indebted to the relatively small number of men and women who have served there, who continue, continue to risk their lives there. And, uh, of course, that also makes us less apt to want to give up in a place where we've lost so much already. Uh, but, it, it, you know, at this point, we don't need a huge additional sacrifice or a huge additional risk to sustain the American contribution to that ongoing mission. So I think there's a good chance that a president's going to make a pragmatic decision and elect to more or less do what I'm proposing and, f- and frankly, frame it in a way that's similar. What I'm trying to say is let's have a no drama Afghanistan policy because both Obama and Trump have been full of drama on this. And I don't think it's really served them very well. They've wound up taking more time on the issue, getting pulled in multiple directions. We should just recognize our interests as sort of secondary or even tertiary here and realize, however, that we don't need that much American capability and effort to sustain uh, a policy that, you know, at this point is not a huge success, doesn't promise some big victory, but does still help the Afghans control all the cities and prevent major terrorist sanctuaries from developing on Afghan soil. So second question, because I, I, I hope you're right on the first. Second question, and everybody's going to feel this is slightly nerdy, but it is one of my hobby horses and I can't help it. One of the things that has driven me insane about recent operations, military operations, both in Iraq and in Afghanistan is the ubiquitous presence of this inspector general. There's one for Iraq, there's one for Afghanistan. These guys are basically playing the role of Monday morning quarterback for everything. All of their reports are, oh, well, you built that school, but you didn't use OSHA approved construction techniques. Oh, you worked with the Afghan military, but the vests that you gave them were 10 millimeters thinner than the vests that you provided to others. Yeah, it's a good point. I have felt that SIGAR has a lot of good, hardworking people who sometimes make a mountain out of a molehill. And what we really need to hear about are threats to the mission and to the viability of the core strategy, not, as you say, sort of nitpicking against regulation. Now, You know, it turns out that in most cases in Afghanistan, policies don't work as well as you hope they will when you implement them. And that's maybe even more true in this case than in many wars. So on balance, if you go in and you do a report, 
I mean, and we're talking about war in the first place, so it's not a pleasant topic like the Washington Nationals winning the World Series. So, you know, it's it, it's something where <laughs> where the news is going to be generally bad and where the goals you set out are usually going to, you know, not be met, at least not at the level that you would prefer. Sometimes getting to half the goal is good enough if what you're trying to prevent is the reconstitution of a terrorist sanctuary. But if you're really trying to end the American involvement altogether, get the Afghanistan government fully functional, you'd like to do better than we have. So SIGAR is going to go into a target-rich environment, so to speak, for accountants and, and for auditors and people who are looking for shortcomings. I just wish there were more of a strategic sense of which of these shortcomings really matter, which ones are surprising, uh, and you know which ones are sort of innate to the difficulty of operating in that kind of a broken country. So let me get my nerd on for a second here uh, to, to follow up on Danny, because you know we talk the, the post series, and you've acknowledged that their mistakes have been made, things have not gone as well as expected. How bad is this compared to past wars? I mean, what would the cigar report on, on D-Day have been? <laughs> you know, D-Day was in many ways a disaster. I mean, the whole, you know, the whole story of the hedgerows and and how we hadn't planned for that. And and you know, you you could take almost any battle that we fought. What would the Cigar Report be on Korea, where we where the casualty rates, uh, you know, were far far higher than anything we've had in any of the theaters of the war on terror? How bad is this compared to past wars? How bad are the mistakes that we've made? How much of a quagmire is this compared to past wars, compared to Korea, compared to Vietnam, compared to you know some of the worst battles of, of World War II? How bad is this? Well, Afghanistan's in some ways been among the most frustrating because it's been so long and we've tried, we've thrown our best talent. I think these, you know, I, didn't, I never knew the Eisenhowers and, and Bradleys, but having gotten to know a number of the commanders and ambassadors, this is a remarkably talented group. And of course, America's all-volunteer military and all-volunteer foreign service are remarkable institutions. So we put a lot of talent into a place and we've tried a lot of strategies and none of them have quite measured up to what I would have hoped. So in that sense, it's been among America's most frustrating wars. But in terms of the magnitude of mistakes, the magnitude of loss, of cost, of casualties, as you well know, it doesn't even begin to compare to many of the cases that you just referred to. I think that's exactly right, Michael. I mean, you know, people don't like being in Afghanistan for 18 years. Just just saying that alone, it sounds like the definition of failure. On the other hand, let's all agree that had we committed the kind of troops we had committed to, even the first desert storm, let alone, you know, the D-Days and Injun landings and, and the wars of the past, there would be no question of our ability to, to be victorious on the ground. You know, if we've committed half the resources to Afghanistan that we committed to the Marshall Plan, uh, we could just play a, you know, an almost transformative role. It's a very apples and oranges kind of comparison that people make. Do you, what do you think the most important lessons were of this war should be? What do you think that, what do you think if you were Cigar, right, and you are actually focused on the strategic imperative, what would you say is the most important thing that the United States should have learned and didn't? Well, when in doubt, uh, fall back on Ryan Crocker's thoughts and comments. That's one of my guidelines in life. And in his op-ed, <laughs> in, in his op-ed, he talked about uh, how some of the bigger projects that we attempted in Afghanistan just never had a chance and probably fueled the corruption inevitably, and we should have seen it coming. And maybe even the magnitude of the troop surge and the quickness was suboptimal, partly because when you flood that kind of 
capability and that much money into a place like Afghanistan, you're inevitably going to worsen the corruption. So I think when I look back, and I, you know, we can't do the counterfactual, but if we could have somehow put in about 50,000 U.S. troops in the early years and tried to build the Afghan army and police in such a way that those forces developed an institutional identity and loyalty and that the soldiers and policemen got paid instead of having their commanders steal the money. We had eyes on the ground to do that. And then it had sustained that kind of level over 10 years rather than starting small, going very big, drawing down very fast. I think that would have had a better chance, but I still don't think it would have been guaranteed to produce great results. By the way, let me just be very clear, and not just because my good buddy Mark is sitting next to me, but because I said this in, in a public session at Brookings the other day as well. I'm not criticizing the Bush administration for turning its eyes from Afghanistan to Iraq and making the argument that somehow that was the cause of having this light footprint. Nobody wanted to invest a lot of resources in Afghanistan in the early years, including the Europeans. Many of the European countries, of course, were against the Iraq war, but it's not as if they said, hey, Washington, why don't you let us get this one and you take care of Iraq? We think you're doing a, you know, making a mistake over there, but you do what you got to do. Just chime in or chip in with you know, one-fourth of the needed NATO force. We'll provide the other three-fourths. We'll scale this up. Nobody said that. Everybody was going light footprint with Afghanistan because nobody really believed you could be that successful in building a state out of virtually nothing after all that country had been through. So expectations were low from the start on both sides of the Atlantic, which is again why the Washington Post was more wrong, much more wrong than right, to allege this pattern of so-called deceit and duplicity. Nobody was aiming that high. Is it fair to say, Michael, that as looking back now at 18 years on Afghanistan, that counterterrorism succeeded and counterinsurgency failed? Yeah. In, in that, you know, the, the mission, the initial mission was to go and whack the people who attacked us and make sure they didn't have a sanctuary and they couldn't carry it, they, they couldn't carry out an attack again. And that succeeded pretty well and is still succeeding pretty well. And then we sort of built into, we had a successful counterinsurgency experience in Iraq with the surge in 2007. And we thought, hmm, let's, let's do that over here. And we started getting into all this governance building, opium production. And Americans look at that and say, why is that our problem? Mm-hmm. You know, our, what I care about as an American citizen and what I'm willing to sacrifice my kids' security for, perhaps, if they are in the military, is to make sure they don't come get us over here. And we now seem to be walking back from that counterinsurgency approach to a more counterterrorism, a light footprint, counterterrorism focused on American security, a little bit less focused on trying to do nation building in Afghanistan. Is that right? And is that the right place to be? Well, I think you are right. But I also think when General McChrystal, for example, did his review in early 2009, he decided that corruption, the very same corruption the Post has written about, was an equal threat to the overall mission and to the viability of the Afghan government, as was the Taliban itself, because he thought this would erode the support from the Afghan people for the government, and therefore it would fall through a weakness of the state, through corruption, and then the Taliban would have an entree to come back and maybe bring al-Qaeda back. In other words, nation building was never, to the extent we were trying to do it, it was never seen as something we were just doing for the fun of it or because we were nice people or because we thought we could build Valhalla in Central Asia. It was because we saw it as a way to preserve the counterterrorism success without us being there forever. And I think there are a lot of ways most of us would now, looking back, uh, do that differently. But maybe the lesson, Michael, is that the idea that basically the idea was we'll go in counterterrorism and then build capability for the Afghans and then we'll be able to leave and let them take care of it and keep the lid on. That takes a lot more troops, a lot more money, a lot more spending. 
maybe the lesson is is that that second part really wasn't ever a realistic goal, and that what we really need, and this will not make the the endless war crowd happy, is a small enduring presence, counterterrorism presence in this country, for not five years, not ten years, but you know how long have we been in Korea? How long have we been in Japan? We may have to be in Afghanistan, not spending billions and trillions of dollars and not with massive troops, but with a small counterterrorism force to keep a lid on this thing for a long time. That might be the the better choice than trying to build up Afghanistan's capability and bring them out of the Stone Age to a sort of a modern society. Yeah, I think you're basically right. And uh, I would be willing to consider that. Now, enough, you know, I wrote 5,000 troops for five years because I was trying to think out one presidential term, sure. tie this to the political debate, and also realize that we don't really know what's going to happen with things like the peace process, although I think it'll be very slow. I would predict that uh, the, between the Taliban and the Afghan government. And also... Pakistan's views on whether they need to keep supporting the Taliban the way they have. Chances are they will, but looking out five years was already far enough for me for that purpose. But I agree with your point. I think it may take a small to modest presence for substantially longer than five years. And if that's what it takes, uh, you know, and we have that, that kind of presence in Afghanistan, that kind of presence in Iraq, that kind of presence in Qatar, they're all somewhat different, you know, from one to another. But I think we can sustain that. Well, Michael, thank you so much for joining us today and explaining all of this to us. Well, thanks to all of you. This was a nice opportunity and treat for me. Pleasure. Okay, so Danny, I want to tackle this thing that we talked about with Michael at the end, which is, you know, this idea that counterterrorism succeeded, but counterinsurgency failed in, in Afghanistan. What do you think? I think the opposite is true. I think counterinsurgency is what succeeds when you are focused on you know the, the the basic principles of counterinsurgency, which are clear, hold, and build, and that means you are returning people to people the sense of their own security that enables them to build a better society, which in turn sort of immunizes them against the return of Al Qaeda or the Taliban. I think counter counterterrorism, which is basically the whack a mole that we always talk about, you know, mm-hmm. it's oh wow terrorist kill him terrorist kill him, other terrorists, kill him. And I don't think that works. I don't think it's worked anywhere. I think that was the policy of the Obama administration. I think it's been the policy of the Trump administration. I think it it is literally us doing the same thing over and over and over again and not recognizing that, what's the definition of insanity, right? Not recognizing recognizing the results are going to be the same. Well, but here's the thing, Danny, is that, so, I mean, I'm I'm an advocate of counterinsurgency because I was in the Bush White House during the surge in Iraq, which is when we switched from, switched to a counterinsurgency strategy and started protecting the population. And it was a huge success because what happened was the Sunnis that had been in the insurgency against us turned and joined us to drive out al-Qaeda because we protected them. Uh, they were afraid of al-Qaeda. Right. And, and so it worked there. But it hasn't translated well in Afghanistan. And we have not been able to build up the uh, capabilities of the Afghans the way we were in, in, in Iraq. Now, maybe it's because Iraq was... Hang on, hang on, hang on, hang on, hang on. Oh. Hang on one second. We had 150,000 troops in Iraq. Of course, it's not going to work in a place where we have 14,000 well, we didn't have well, we didn't have fourteen thousand then, and under Obama we had a hundred thousand troops. And the maybe the difference is, quite frankly, is that Iraq. What I was starting to say before you so rudely interrupted me was that uh, Iraq <laughs> was a much more advanced society 
than Afghanistan is. I mean, Afghanistan is a is quite literally it's it's slight exaggeration to say it's in the Stone Ages, and Iraq is a society with ed- educated population, commerce, trade, science, you know, and it's a lot easier to build up capability in Iraq. And Iraq seems to be actually doing pretty well after the surge. You know, it's got its problems, it's got its challenges with the Iranian influence and and all the rest of it. But it's a semi-functioning democracy in the heart of the Middle East. Afghanistan is, despite our best efforts, still in the Stone Age. Maybe the lesson is we can't bring a country out of the Stone Age. Yeah, I mean, look, let's talk about this selfishly. Okay, we can we can have a deep dive about Afghanistan successes and failures and limitations and what century people there live in. But at the end of the day, that's pretty irrelevant to most Americans. What is relevant is that Afghanistan doesn't become a safe haven. Absolutely. And the, the, the key question for us, taxpayers, us, policymakers, us, you know, thought leaders, whatever we want to call ourselves, the key question for us is how do you create an Afghanistan that we do not have to keep going back to? And unfortunately, this is where we circle back to the chaos. You know, what is it that creates the environment for these people? It is the corruption, okay? It's why people are out in the streets in Lebanon. It's why people are out in the streets in Iraq. And it is why the Taliban has endless opportunities to resurge in Afghanistan because corruption, mismanagement, malfeasance, inability to sell what you make, what you grow, inability to drive down the road without giving a payoff to somebody, inability to get a license to do anything without paying off somebody. Sure, I I understand that sounds like Chicago to a lot of people, but (laughs) the one thing, well, yeah, but the one thing I don't worry about in Chicago is when those people rule, the people who benefit are Al-Qaeda and the Taliban. In Afghanistan, that's the case. That's why this fight, that's why the counterinsurgency part of this is so important. And so maybe what we need to do is recognize that and say, you know, we're going to we're reducing our force levels from what was hundreds of thousands of troops under Bush and uh, and Obama now down to 14,000, maybe going down to 10. Michael says five could do it. I don't know. uh, You know, Fred Kagan may disagree with that. But whatever that force level is, it's a it's a fraction of what it was before. And their job is to prevent the Taliban from coming back, which means that. Afghans are better off because we have a generally pro-American government, maybe corrupt, maybe mismanaging things, but it's not. They don't wake up every morning saying America's the the problem in the world and we got to go kill Americans. And then we go play whack-a-mole. And we have to do that for a long time. The idea that we could have ever gone in and gotten rid of the bad guys and then left and let the Afghans handle it may be a fallacy. Maybe it means we, we have to be there with a small presence. But we have to be there for a very long time with a small presence, not ever getting down to zero uh, in our in your or my lifetime. Yeah, well, I'm not persuaded. I'm not persuaded that's going to work. I think the one thing that we we both agree is that there's a long term commitment here necessary. We both agree yes. that the Washington Post has done a huge disservice, not just to the people who fight on the ground, our generals, our ambassadors, our foreign service, you know, our development professionals. They've not just done a disservice to them. They've done a disservice to all their colleagues who have been standing up amid one of the most odious onslaughts on the press under the Trump administration and actually made what is so often a lie, this expression about fake news, true. Yep. Here's the thing that they the analogy that they drew in that story is with Vietnam, right? And that the American people turned on the Vietnam War and they, that basically Afghanistan is another Vietnam. 
it, let's let's take that analogy forward. So one, what happened after Vietnam? Ronald Reagan came into power, and we still had to confront the spread of, of communism, of this violent, hateful ideology around the world. And there was no appetite in the American people to send hundreds of thousands of troops to Vietnam or to Angola or to Nicaragua or to Afghanistan or all these other places. So what we did was we did the Reagan doctrine. We came up with a strategy where we would help enable indigenous forces in each of these countries to fight our enemies for us. And that's essentially where the place where we've gotten down to in not just in Afghanistan, but in in Syria, in Iraq, where, you know, right now, I mean, Michael wrote, you know, that I think 95 percent of the casualties and 92 percent of the combat operations in Afghanistan are being carried out by the Afghan National Army with obviously with they couldn't do it without us. We're providing mission planning, intelligence, you know, air cover, fire support, things that we're enablers, but they're doing the fighting for us. That, I think, may be the right strategy, not just in Afghanistan, but in Syria, in in Iraq, and that we're going to have we're going to have to stay there, not at the levels where, you know, where Trump pretends that we're still, you know, have hundreds of thousands of troops around the world. We got to end these these forever wars. No, we've got small deployments of troops that are enabling our partners on the ground to fight the bad guys who would otherwise be coming to kill us here. Why is that not a sustainable strategy and that not the lesson? Well, you know, I mean, maybe maybe that is part of the lesson. Maybe we need to be flexible. Maybe we need to recognize that no matter what, you know, we need a commitment uh, to people like the Kurds. We need commitments to the Afghan National Army. We need commitments to the Iraqi Army. We need these commitments, A, so we don't have to fight, and we need to be willing to fight when the stakes are high enough for us. So, you know, what can I tell you? Uh, one way or another, though, the, the one thing that we can all agree about is that withdrawing from the world, and, you know, pretending it's not going to come and chase us is just, you know, is just stick, a dangerous stick your head in the sand strategy. Now, the lesson learned from this, if you really want a lesson learned on Afghanistan, you got to go back to the Reagan administration and the early Bush, Bush 41 administration, which is we got the Soviets to withdraw by supporting the Mujahideen. And then the Soviet Union collapsed and we had entered the end of history and we just forgot about Afghanistan and said, doesn't matter to us what happens in Afghanistan. Doesn't matter if the Taliban come to power, if, if Islamic radicals come to power. It's not our problem. It's a, you know, it's a let them pound sand over there. And the result was 9-11. And so we need to keep that lesson in mind that whatever the strategy is, and it, it may be counterinsurgency, it may be counterterrorism, it may be the Reagan doctrine approach. The one thing we should all be able to agree on is that we can't ignore it anymore. We've seen the costs of that, and making that mistake again would be tragic. Well, for once, we agree. <laughs> <laughs> Not for once. You agree with me all the time, Danny. You just don't want to admit it. That's true. Thank you. All right. Take care. Thanks. All right. Bye. And our team here at AEI is Alexa Santry, Matt Winesett, Jen Moretta, and Macy Heath. Let us know what topics you'd like us to cover. You can get in touch with the show by emailing us at whatthehell at AEI.org. Or you can reach us on Twitter. I'm at D. Pletka. And I'm at Mark Thiessen. That's Mark with a C. Please rate and review the podcast. If you like the show, please subscribe, share it, comment on Apple Podcasts, or wherever you're listening to this. Thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.